Does it seem like mental health is declining? That's because it is. It is reported that mental health conditions have risen by 20% in recent years. For teenage girls, sadness and depression has increased by 60% in the last two years. Caring for the well-being and wholeness of people made in the image of God is part of our calling and purpose as Christ followers to carry out the redemptive work of the gospel. It is for this reason the Center for Faith and Innovation at Wheaton College is offering the Certificate in Mental Health and Gospel Care with our friends Steve Cuss and Dr. Jaslyn Dixon, an eight-week course beginning April 25th. Leaders will have the opportunity to develop tools for effective change as they shape, engage, and encourage the development and wellness of those they serve in their church, work, and community. To learn more and register today, visit our website, centerforfaithandinnovation.org. That's centerforfaithandinnovation.org. Hi, my name is Lindsay Fleming, and I'm joined today with Ted Esler, um, president of Missio Nexus. So Ted, thanks for joining us. Um, I know you've written several books, but today we're really kind of talking about your most recent one, The Innovation Crisis, Creating Disruptive Influence and Ministry You Lead. So thanks so much for sitting down and just talking that out with me today. Yeah, great. It's, I'm very glad for the offer. I want to see many, many more innovators uh, see their dreams fulfilled. So getting to talk about this book is awesome. Well, thanks again for joining us. For those of us who uh, that might be listening um, that don't know a lot about Missio Nexus, would you give them like a little teaser of what what you're doing and the people that you're leading? So Missio Nexus is the association that ties together the missionary agencies from the U.S. and Canada, as well as globally focused churches. It represents about 54,000 people if you add up all the staff. And our mission is to catalyze relationships, ideas, and collaboration within the Great Commission community. So that's what we do. So how did you how did you get there? I know that that hasn't always been what you've done. So how what was your track record, or what was your career path that led you to to start this? Well, my first career was in the computer industry, and then uh, one Sunday morning, I heard kind of an old timey missionary talk about their work, and uh, it intrigued my wife and I. We started to research and find out information. Eventually, we ended up in Bosnia, and we were there for pretty much most of the decade of the 1990s, which if you remember were all the war years that were happening there. And from there, I went into various leadership positions in the mission agency we worked with, we worked with called Pioneers. And then in 2015, this role opened up, and I was asked to take it on, and so I've been doing this now Hard, hard for me to believe, but for seven years. Wow, that's awesome. So I know in your recent book, I mean, you're talking about change and, you know, taking that mission approach and, you know, what is the biggest shift that you've seen in, in global missions from, I mean, my impression growing up as a child in the church was, like you said, the missionaries came in, we gave our, our, our offering certain time of the year, we were pen pals with missionaries, but Global missions looks completely different. How would you how would you describe it now? Well, Lindsay, if you got about seven or eight hours, I could go over the big changes. But uh, just real quickly, probably the biggest thing is missionaries working in the 40s, 50s, 60s, and 70s 
they were impactful. And as a result, we have partners now all over the world. In fact, in the last about 110 years or so, the number of Christians in the West, it used to be 80% of all Christians were in the West. Now it's about that amount outside the West. And so now in many places where we go to work, there are indigenous national Christians that we can work alongside with. Now there still are many, many people groups that are unreached. So that continues to be a focus and there's still a need for frontline workers. But the biggest change has certainly been the rise of the two thirds world church. So explain the two thirds world church for someone who's listening in, who's not familiar with that phrase. Well, typically we talk about the, you've heard of the first world and the third world. When we use the term two-thirds world, we're really talking about the non-Western countries. I mean, the church is is huge in Africa. It's huge in Asia. And it's even growing among Muslim populations. Um, The the church globally is really in growth mode right now. That's really exciting because we see something a little bit of the opposite here in, in the U.S. So it's encouraging and exciting to hear that the church is on the move and thriving around the world. Um. I know I want to talk specifically about innovation and I know you do like consulting as you know, you go in, whether it's ministries, churches, um, and you know, innovation is, I come from the business world. So, um, our, I was a medical devices. I resonate with the the opening that you spoke about your brother. I, I understand innovation from that perspective, but you don't really hear about innovation in the church. In fact, I think, or in ministry, it almost probably would scare the majority of people thinking that you're watering down what's wrong with the, I mean, it's, you know, we don't need necessarily innovation, but what is, how do you, how do you broach that when you actually are consulting and, and how do you, how do you get them on board or I guess a little bit more comfortable with the word innovation? Well, first, let me just remind the readers, it's the innovation crisis and it's a crisis because it's not happening. Right. And um, what I like to lead with usually is the fact that if you if you were to look at the history of the world, there's very few more innovative leaders that you could think of than Jesus himself. Mm-hmm. In fact, he was so innovative. Every time he opened his mouth, he, even his own followers were fearful of the new thought or new idea that they could hardly digest that was about to come out of his mouth. Mm-hmm. And in fact, for centuries the church was the leader of innovation. And in the book, I recount some examples of this, but just the the overall uh, lack of innovation that we have today, I think is a bit because we've lost our way and we've lost our understanding of what it was like to follow Jesus and just hear all of this new stuff that he talked about. I know. I don't want to give it away to the readers, but you did an excellent job of highlighting those. And um, throughout the book. And I do think, I mean, just even reading and listening to it again today, I was just, um, Christ was a perfect example for us to follow. I I think, oh, go ahead. Can I just say, you know, I think, um, one reason why oftentimes faith-based leaders are fearful around innovation is because of our emphasis on doctrine Yes. In the fear that I'm taking, you know, my notes. You're taking my next question, not my next question, but I, I agree with you. So keep, yeah. keep going. So in the book, as we're talking about innovation, we're really talking about a, a lot of communication issues. Mm-hmm. 
And there's plenty of room for innovation without thinking that you'd need to change the foundations or fundamentals of the church. And one of the things that's incredible about Jesus' ministry, he did two things when, when he communicated, he did two things at the same time that are seeming opposites. And he did them so well. One thing he did was his message was very much contextualized for the audience. That word contextualized is a big word in missiology and missions. It just means that it was suited to the audience. When a Jewish person heard him speak, they felt at home with what he had to say. On the other hand, he said some things that were astonishingly difficult to say in his cultural context. And by putting those two things together, um, he was able to communicate in a way that almost has never been captured again. And that is a huge area of opportunity for innovation in the faith space. And that is learning how to communicate uh, something that's countercultural, but in a very culturally appropriate way. And that's one thing that I, I learned in the, you know, you pointed out in the book and just thinking to um, specifics that I can relate to. Most people, I think exactly what you said, if we do it differently, we're watering down the message, but really the message is the same. The message is complete and completely innovative. And that is, that work is finished, but the way that we communicate is what we can can share in the innovation and continue to spark ideas and have creative things that we haven't yet tried, but it doesn't change the message. So I love how you really drove that home um, in your book. Yeah, the, the, the message of Christ is not bound to any culture. And we think about that. We I think we just kind of take that for granted today, but that was the huge change that happened in the book of Acts, where the gospel went from just being a Jewish thing into being something for all peoples. And the fact that, that the, the specific cultural veneer in which the gospel comes in is different wherever it shows up, that just offers us so many opportunities for innovation. One other thing I want to, just while we're on it, um, you know, when you're speaking of innovation with groups, you know, I can... I can imagine that that comes with, like I said, some hesitation and it's not something that you probably can manufacture or even change overnight. So what is one thing that, where do you start? Like, how do you, how do you take the first step when you go in? Is there one thing that you can communicate universally or, or challenge the thought process? How do you start? Because, you know, innovation takes time and you just can't, I guess, force it, but how do you take a first practical step or what's one thing that you encourage everyone to maybe identify as you start? Well, Lindsay, you can force it, but that's a little different topic. But where I like to, where I like to start. Let's do another podcast, yeah. podcast two. We'll talk about that. Where I like to start. So in, if you are much of a business book reader, you will have heard of a guy named Christensen. He had this theory called the innovator's dilemma. And, and the basic outline of that theory is that when a, when a company does something and they do it well, they create this solution that drives their growth. And that very solution over time becomes the anchor around their neck because the industry moves on, the customers change, the culture changes, whatever it might be. And it's very hard to reorient the business around something new or different. 
And I would just say when it comes to ministry leadership, this is on steroids. And so a great place to start with ministries is to have them do some self-awareness. Okay. Um, and have them think about what it is, what is it that originally we offered that perhaps is no longer relevant. I mean, here's here's an important difference between business and ministry. In business, competition drives of the vast majority of innovation that's out there. In ministry, our competition is not other ministries. Our competition is with the world, the fallen world. And so it's a little bit more ambiguous, right. requiring a little bit more out of us as we do this analysis of how to communicate well in our context. And so where I like to start with is really helping organizations to think about some of the foundational assumptions that they had that were good at one time, but now might be irrelevant because the competition, our culture has shifted and moved into, into a different era. Do you find that, you know, just like you said, what worked and what probably got them to that point of success, you know, without adapting or innovating, you know, it gets kind of stagnant and stale. But do you find some people, especially I could see this at ministry feeling, oh, God called me to do it this way. I just have to persevere, you know, and keep going because he's going to reward my faithfulness. Like I see that probably being almost a current that you might see in something like this. Is that, is that something that you encounter? I, I definitely would, I would counter it. I mean, I think this, this idea of infusing methodology with calling or with theology, yeah. um, that is when you, you begin to basically put up roadblocks for rethinking and re-envisioning how you're doing what you do. I mean, for me, one of the disappointments of the last couple of years when COVID came along was many, many churches, instead of doing the sermon in front of, you know, a, an audience or congregation, they began to do the exact same thing with just the camera there. And I was thinking to myself, you know, if you were able to teach using all the resources of the internet at your disposal, all the teaching tools that could be brought into bear, all of the high quality video and imagining story and narrative that you could do because now people are watching on a screen that you might not have been able to do in the auditorium. It just didn't happen. And I think it's because we have got this uh, way, a method of doing something. Yep. And even when a crisis hits, it's hard for us to think outside that method. And so again, if we can help even if it's a business, but any, anybody thinking about what was that, what's that thing that we're doing that it might be profitable now. It's not going to be profitable in the future, most likely. Right. How can we think about what needs to replace that before the crisis actually hits? And now all of a sudden we're losing uh, our congregation or our market share or whatever it is. So I think it is getting ahead of that, that innovation cycle. So that's a great, that's a great lead in. Um, and just what came to mind is how do you begin assessing when it's time to start doing the next thing? Because you see success, but almost like when you see that you have to be planning, um, 
you know, I, I know in medical devices, like you said, competition. So when we see the competitor messing around over here and you can start to see we're, we're already innovating for the next product that's continuing to advance that procedure, that technique. But how do you do that with people, um, you know, or, mm-hmm. or ministries or workplaces? When do you, how do you not become stagnant? How do you assess good versus bad? Well, you know, the, the best thing to do is to create an innovation culture in your organization. Now, in the innovation world, there's two big approaches you'll see. One is to have an innovation lab, a specialized team whose job is to innovate on behalf of your company. The other approach is to just infuse innovation everywhere, making sure everybody feels like they're part of that innovation curve. Um, those that's not, that's not a binary, by the way. You can do both of those things, and yeah. some do that quite successfully. Um, the answer to your question is complicated because there's many strategies that are able to be deployed. In the technology world, probably the most common strategy, we may not like it, but they buy innovation. So they just go out and they find companies that are innovating and they buy them. And they bring those ideas and they bring those people into the fold and they, they kind of move forward from there. So in the ministry world, it's, again, it's a little more complicated. In fact, I would say it's way easier to innovate in business than it is in ministry. I would agree with you. Yeah. Because yeah. you kind of know you have to keep, you're always continuing to innovate. It's, it's expected. It but is. here we look at people and we're like, wow, that program really worked. Let's keep doing it. And we do it until we drive it into the ground and it's not effective. And then the, you know, in order to catch up takes such, such uh, maybe enormous time or effort or resources or even camaraderie to get everybody on the same page and, and mobilize so that they can do something new. Right. And, and, and this is, again, where I think the cultural piece, your organizational culture is so important. Yeah. If you have an organizational culture that, so, you know, we used to talk about change management. Mm-hmm. That actually is very 70s and 80s. We don't try to manage change anymore. Now we try to create change. We want to try to not just make adjustments to what's happening around us. Instead, we want to make the adjustments happen. That's that's that whole idea of disruption. Uh, for many, I, I mean, the, the type of people that can do disruption, they're actually, they're just different people than most of us. So if you are trying to create disruptive innovation, you might need to go out and find people to join your team. Let me let me give you an example. Sure. I have here on my desk two Kindle devices. The first device came out, uh, I forget the actual year, but let's say a decade ago. Right. It's a clunky little white device with chiclet keys. It's got a goofy black and white screen. And I also have- No, I know, I can see it right now. My mom has one, yep. Yeah, they were great little devices in their day, but now the new one, it's a Fire HD tablet. It looks just kind of like an iPad. It's a full color screen, can run apps. It's amazing. They're both innovations. They're both innovative. But the team that came up with that first one, that was disruptive innovation. Right. And that team is a different person, the, the, the different kind of people on that team than this other one, which is incremental innovation over time. Mm-hmm. Now, most organizations and businesses need both in their midst. But you have to think about who you have available. If you're going to, especially if you're going to do disruptive innovation, the team that does iterative innovation is probably not going to be the same team that that focuses on disruption. 
I agree. I, I think it's, it's hard. Like the challenge is when it comes to ministry, right? I mean, uh, we saw it in medical devices. Surgeons were great at doing surgery and, um, but when it came to actually running their practice, many struggled because they had spent the majority of their training in medicine. Um, and so I would look at the church or missions oriented people and think, wow, they did so much training in ministry and, you know, they don't always have that business approach. And so blending the two is so valuable, but not something that we necessarily do common in, in, I would say the, like the ministry uh, church type of setting. Yeah, yeah, it's it's true. In, a, in the people that are the most innovative, there is some social punishment that they're going to get um, a lot of times in the context of the church. You know, it is. So I when I when I would teach on innovation, I often would say I have not met any ministries that have a significant R&D budget. And actually, I found out that that I mean, I think that's fairly true. Actually, there's a couple, but not many. And I, was, I would contrast that with business. But to my surprise, I once had somebody who was a business consultant, and he sent me a little report that showed like less than one half of 1% of businesses right. have R&D budgets. Mm-hmm. So in one sense, they're no different. If you were to look at the vast majority of businesses. It's probably similar. Yeah. But the ones that really drive innovation, and the medical device industry is an example of it. The, the, it's really the tech industry more than anybody else. Right. They, they, they plan and spend significantly on innovation. It would be a good idea for us as well in the ministry world to set aside time, people, resources, and, and, and leadership to be able to focus on innovation. Well, I hope if the viewers haven't read your book, this will encourage them too, because there's a lot of great nuggets that we don't want to spill all the beans, but, you know, some really exciting and practical, you know, examples that you pull from scripture and in real life that tie all together so nicely in the book. Um, So I hope if people haven't picked up the innovation crisis that they will, but as we kind of can, oh, and if you want to add something, feel free. I'm just going to say the thing that's kind of surprised me about the book is that uh, the most common way I'm finding it's being read is by teams. So a leadership team or a management team will read it together. And if you want to see innovation happen, that really is, um, that's smart because you really need to do that together. Innovation is a team effort. Yeah. It's, it's much easier to go as a group uh, than to go, you know, just solo for sure. Yeah. Um One thing I wanted to ask you in closing, you know, you are in a really unique position in what Missio Nexus does and what this book offers, the reach that you have. What is something that's really exciting you? You know, we could say we kind of missed the mark on the opportunity that COVID presented. Some people did it really well. The majority have just continued on like you shared earlier, but maybe what's something you could share with us that's, that you're really excited about that you have seen emerge as you have used this book to, you know, I guess discuss and kind of um, churn over innovation with, with people. You know, I would say in terms of specific examples of innovation, one area of ministry that's gotten very innovative in the last few years, and this is partly driven by COVID, is the whole arena of of media and the use of media to communicate the gospel. 
Now, many of us are familiar with the use of media in, in the church. It's mostly been broadcast based, mm-hmm. but many ministries have gotten very good at using niche media channels to target very specific groups of people. And what's, uh, I think the added innovation that's come about recently is the follow-up mechanisms as opposed to just broadcasting a message. It's the engagement of individuals on social media platforms for long-term ministry impact. Uh, there, There are, I mean, at this point, I'd say hundreds of stories of people locked up in their rooms during COVID and they just, they use social media. They use the internet to research and find things out. And I'm talking about in places where there are very extremely few Christians, very few Christians. And so that would be one very bright area is how uh, these ministries have been able to tie media, niche, niche media in with follow-up mechanisms. And that's, I mean, we all desire community and that connection. And so it goes beyond just kind of like sitting in the pew. If you could just, it's not just about retaining or learning something more, but it's having that connection and that uh, change relationship with, with people and with Christ. So what a great encouraging spotlight, you know, to share with us. Anything else that you'd want to share with someone um, just in closing as we wrap up today, but we should almost do another session to kind of dig into it a little bit further. I'm excited. Yeah, we could definitely do that. I would just, I'd close with this. Um, you know, when I, when I, if I were to say to somebody, you know, we need more ministry organizations, people, I think kind of scratch their head and they just think, oh man, we got so many. Why do we need any more? But if I rephrase that question and I say, you know, we need to empower the vision of ministry entrepreneurs. Now the whole dynamic is different. Right. And, and I think that's the way we need to think about, uh, and, and again, not just in ministry either, but also in business. I just real quickly, let me just say that one of the things I think that's important to recognize, no matter where you go in the world, if there's somebody in the household that has a dependable, reasonably well-paying job, the entire lifestyle and health of that household is better. And so business has a lot to do with wellness and that really needs to be wed with ministry objectives so that we can see many, many more people lifted up out of poverty, lifted up out of a lack of education, et cetera. So, you know, I, I would just say we want to get behind entrepreneurs and we want to, whether it's business or whether it's ministry, we need to empower these um, entrepreneurial spirits. Well, at the Center uh, for Faith and Innovation at Wheaton, you know, we like to say that's where business and faith meet at that intersection. And so we couldn't agree um, with you more and want to champion all of everyone who can be behind that mission because business and ministry together is, is really what uh, can, you know, transform and almost exponentially explode the gospel far more than the one, the one missionary that comes into my church as a kid that trains on the language for many years and is, grows discouraged by himself out in the field, you know, business with ministry and these innovative ideas can really propel the gospel much faster. Amen. Yeah. 
Well, thank you so much, Ted, for jumping on. I'd love to keep the conversation going and maybe we can do a follow-up, um, you know, down the road in a few months just to talk more and get some more stories and insight from what the feedback you're getting as, as the book Innovation Crisis continues to explode. Love to do it. Thanks for having me. Yes. Thank you so much.